0: Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Mohsen Mamong. Currently, Mohsen Mamong is helping learning facilitators how to use games to facilitate virtual and classroom instruction led training programs. He dreams of a world where people play to learn, and he's passionate about game based learning, gamification, and games in general. Mohsen uses games and technology to change the way learning happens by creating real and authentic lifelike learning experiences that ultimately lead to realization and then change. In the past, he has worked as a learning designer and facilitator. He has facilitated learning experiences for Marsh, Netflix, Flipkart, Uber, Siemens, Bayer, JP Morgan, Gemini, GIA, Group M, JLT, and many others. He's also worked as an IT project manager with Delta Airlines and Walmart, where he implemented some really exciting technology solutions. All in all, he's a lifelong adventurer, a wandering nomad that worked all kinds of jobs, from sales to customer service to construction to learning designer to game designer, you name it. Welcome to the podcast, emotion.
1: Hi, thanks for having me here, Kimberly.
0: Yeah, so you've been quite uh, on quite a lot of adventures. Sounds like absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah, the life whole my whole life has been a bit of an adventure, uh, lots of ups and downs, and I've been enjoying every last bit of it.
0: Mm-hmm. That is wonderful, and I'm excited about anything that has to do with games or having fun because I'm one of those people that if it's not fun, I won't do it. <laughs> I hear you. I, I used to you know, make doing the dishes fun. You have to do it, you know, sing or do something to make it fun. So,
1: absolutely. You can turn that into a game as well.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear how. So, anyways, just so people can get to know you, tell us your story.
1: Wow. Quite a loaded question there, Kimberly. <laughs> I'm going to try. Uh, well, you know, I, um, I first off, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about games and and what i do today and i am so fortunate and so blessed to be doing what i do uh because every day i um i work first off i work a four-day work week and and that leaves me three days of um, time to do whatever i want some of which is either watching tv or playing games or learning something new and by about sunday evening i'm ready to get back to work and, uh, and that feels so great because I know a lot of people have something they call Sunday blues. Uh, and you know, by the time Sunday afternoon rolls around, uh, they're kind of dreading getting back to work. And, uh, and so in that sense, I find myself to be very, very fortunate and blessed to be able to feel so good about the work that I do. Um, what's brought me here has been a series of experiments, trials and errors and um, something that eventually led me to be building games uh, which is what I do today and I'll be glad to talk to you about some of those ups and downs Um, but but that's that's pretty much uh, in a nutshell if you will how how I got where I am. Mm
0: -hmm. So when you were um, growing up is there anything that caused you to that you think was a kind of a something a foreshadowing of that you were going to get into this game gaming and gosh
1: no that's the you know that's the the, the crazy and the most funniest thing because as a kid I always wanted to be an, an aeronautical engineer and and I was always um inclined with mathematics and uh and physics because uh, early on my yeah I remember asking uh the adults in my life um uh, what does it take to become an aeronautical engineer? And they said, well, you need a lot of math and a lot of science and physics specifically. So I started really focusing on, on all, a lot of math and a lot of science. And then the harsh reality hit me. Um, I was sometime somewhere in high school, maybe um, junior year or so. I remember my dad sitting me down and saying, look kid, we, you know, we're first, first um, generation immigrants into the United States. And unlike a lot of others, we don't have a lot of savings. And so the this, this school you want to go to, Embry-Riddle, is in Daytona Beach, and it is expensive. And we are not going to be able to afford it. And um, so, so whatever you do, uh, you're going to need to make it on your own financially. At least. He said, we'll have all, you'll have all the moral support that you can possibly get from us, but financially, we're, our hands are tied. And, uh, and there was about that time when I, was, I had to make a very tough decision about what I was gonna do and, and how I was going to um, uh, become an aeronautical engineer. And uh, clearly that didn't happen the way I had planned. Uh, but that's, that's life, isn't it, right? Along the way you make plans, you have, um, you, make, you have ideas of what you wanna do in your life, but then along the way you have realizations as well. And sometimes those ideas, also are not your own. That's the, that's the other thing that I realized. Because as a kid, the reason I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer was because my dad had sort of planted the seed in my mind, you know, as a kid. And, and as, as a young adult, I, I now look back and I realize that that wasn't my dream to begin with. So maybe had I gone down that path, perhaps I wouldn't be as happy or as, as fulfilled as I am. Now, so it was then that I made a pivotal decision of, um, of learning and focusing on investing in myself. I got into a, a mentorship program, uh, which was extremely valuable for me at that point in time. And this mentorship program, uh, helped me to learn about entrepreneurship, about values, about business, about leadership, and it really inculcated and developed some of these core values that I now live by, and and paved the way and laid the kind of foundation for me to eventually do uh, what I do now. And I think if there's one thing that I could say about all of this is my mentors always said that you know you could you could you have a choice of investment. You can choose to invest in stocks and bonds and and choose to invest in in these material things which are outside of you or you can choose to invest in yourself and if you invest in yourself that's an investment that will never go wasted because you can always rely on yourself to achieve whatever goal you have even though goals may change
0: yeah that is great advice and so from there how did you invest your into yourself and how did you what did you start out as far as your career? What did you start out working at?
1: Wow. Um, This is a bit nostalgic because I, I, I'm the type that doesn't, doesn't spend as much time thinking about the past. And uh, I, because I'm I'm more forward thinking, I'm more in the present moment and, and and I don't tend to think about as much of the stuff that's happened in the past. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to try a little bit here and, and say that um, one of the, one of the things that I, I did do uh, was I, I never went to college uh, and instead I used the time, the money, the effort, energy into uh, starting working on the mentorship program and developing a business. So I started uh, entrepreneurship at a very young age. I was 18 when I uh, started running my first business and I used uh, a lot of the time and energy to also um read, I read all kinds of books and mostly self-help. So, so books like, you know, uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill or uh, The Magic of Thinking Big or The Secret or, I mean, there were there are a whole laundry list of books, even books by, um, by Og Mandino, uh, incredible books. I don't know if you've read any of them, but The Greatest Salesman in the World, The Greatest Miracle in the World, Brilliant books and such incredible messaging. And then there's another one of my favorites, The Go Getter. I don't know if you've uh, read that, that one. I love
0: that book. Yeah,
1: love that book. Right, the Blue vase It is mm-hmm. so iconic. It is so symbolic. Makes such a difference. And you know those these kinds of books early on really helped me to get into the mindset of um, of knowing that that whatever financial situation I'm in, whatever conditions, whatever st- Whatever scenarios I'm dealing with are are my own doing, and and that I am here because of me, and I can I can no longer look outside of me and look at my circumstances and blame them for what's happened to me you know, because for as long as I do that, as long as I say, ah, gosh, I wish my parents had more money that I could put me through college and they could, you know, I could do this, look at all my friends, they're going through school and they're, you know, they're making a life of themselves. One guy's becoming a lawyer, another, another guy's becoming a doctor, another guy's becoming an IT engineer or whatever. And and for as long as I'm doing that, I am shifting blame outside of me and I'm no longer looking at myself. Uh, but the moment I am able to say my my condition, my situation, my world today, me, myself, I am a result of my own actions. I can then start to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And and that really uh, was one of those things that I did that changed a lot of uh, how I dealt with uh, uh, failures and things that happened along the way.
0: Right. Yeah. And before we came on, we were talking about, you know, I'm from Georgia, from Atlanta. Area and you had worked in Atlanta early on with Delta Airlines, which is our largest airline here. And how did that happen?
1: Wow, that was a stroke of chance, providence, call it what you will. Uh, but it was a consulting opportunity. So there was uh, they they had a need for a a junior business analyst. I knew somebody, and one of the one of the other things I learned in um, in my entrepreneurship. Uh, stint was I learned how to network, which was such a such an important skill i feel especially for someone like me who didn't know anybody i i grew up in a in a very kind of a middle class sort of family with not a whole lot of uh connections and first generation immigrants you know we didn't have any family in the united states so it's not like we had any anybody who could connect me with anyone who was doing something with their life Mm -hmm. Uh, my dad worked in construction my mom worked at dunkin donuts so i mean it was a very very basic and 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 so I knew that the people that were going to help me were people who were not in my circle. Uh, they were beyond my network. And and so one of the things I would do is I would meet people uh, very intentionally, very um, categorically. Meet people uh, as and when I would uh, go to, to to the grocery store. And I remember walking into a Kroger's one day, and I uh, I saw I saw a man walking in with his with his kid and. Uh, he was just kind of kind of walking into the the grocery store and a dog and I I kind of you know ruffled the dog's hair and, and just kind of struck up a conversation and and by the time we reached the entrance of of the the grocery store uh, he he asked me if I'd be interested in in an opportunity to work as a consultant and he had connections within uh, Delta Airlines where they needed a junior business analyst and. I hadn't worked in corporate ever, and uh, so uh, he trained me. And he had a he had a consulting practice. He trained me, uh, gave me the skills I needed to be an effective business analyst. I learned a bunch of really interesting stuff, and that really kind of set the path for me in getting into information technology. and um, And from there, uh, I did. I, I felt felt like I did quite well. I worked with Delta for about two years and ended up uh, reaching a, a project manager. Level, uh, which too happened quite by 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 chance. Actually, uh, it's a different story. But uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I got started with my, my corporate career.
0: Wow. So when you left Delta, did you just go out on your own as a consultant, or do you continue to work with this gentleman?
1: Uh, no. So at that point, I uh, found another opportunity to work with uh, with Walmart uh, in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, and so moved there for uh, a little while and worked there for nearly 2 years as well and uh, and it was about that time when i realized that uh, one that i had a i had a love for for learning because my my learning teams loved me because i would always you know whip up something on the whiteboard and, and work with my teams and you know do something or the other and and that was a lot of fun and i realized that was my my so called native genius because i loved to to, and, and by nature, I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert, actually, but my my love for learning and my love for forgiving um, ended up uh, allowing me to to share whatever it is that I knew. And um, and so I worked with Delta and it was about that time that I realized I wanted to get into learning and uh, really shift careers and, and start to do something that I, uh, I would find a lot of uh, passion in, in doing. And um, and, and that's what got me out of the United States as well, as a matter of fact.
0: Okay. Yeah. So how do we make learning fun?
1: Wow. Uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the best ways to make learning fun is, is through games. Uh, games play a significant role in, in, in how, not just games, but play, you know? Okay. Uh, we, we learn through play. We've always learned through play. Uh, whether you you see kids and you know, or or even young adults, um, and and when we're able to create playful experiences, we're able to create what is known as the magic circle. Are you familiar with the magic circle?
0: Uh, why don't you explain it?
1: Yeah, sure. So, magic circle is this really really interesting concept, and the idea of uh, magic circle is that. Within, and it's not my, my idea, this was uh, first in, uh, discovered and communicated by uh, Johann Huizinga uh, many, many years ago, hundreds, maybe over a hundred years ago. And he talks about this, this magic circle and he says that inside this magic circle, magic can happen. And for magic to happen inside the circle, you need three things. Uh, number one, you need a player. Number two, you need a play thing the thing that the the player is interacting with. And number three, which is really where where a lot of the work in game design goes into, is the interaction between the player and the plaything. So if you look at a game of soccer, right? the, The soccer field is the magic circle where the magic is happening. The players have to kick this ball into the net, right? And the rules determine Uh, how people feel while they're inside the magic circle. You feel a sense of energy, you feel a sense of freedom, you feel a sense of of excitement, passion, competition, collaboration, all of these kinds of emotions and and behaviors start to surface, which can be so powerful uh, when we take a step back and we look at what happened inside the magic circle to draw learning from. And that could be a a really, really um, important medium to learn and, and draw insights from.
0: Wow, so we can take one of these circles and just superimpose it on whatever we're doing? How does that work?
1: Yeah, so what you're talking about is gamification. And, and I think this, what you just said, is one of the simplest yet more most profound examples or definitions of gamification. What gamification simply says is that you could take your life and you can you can place a layer of game on top of your life and gamify that. So we were talking about you know doing dishes earlier and we could we could gamify that so if you could for every every dish that you you uh, washed you get a point or something and those points uh, when you accumulate sufficient points they convert into something else. and when they convert into something else you could use them for something that uh, could be in the category of self-care. And so so every time you're doing the dishes, you're actually moving one step closer towards your self-care goal, whatever that may be, right? And and so, yeah, superimposing uh, this magic circle uh, and, and really the, the crux of all of this is the interaction design. The, the game design which is the interaction between the player and the plaything, and that's where I do a lot of my work today uh, which is to design games that are meaningful and valuable uh, and can really create a shift in behavior for people as opposed to just slapping points badges and leaderboards onto, onto things because that's really not the answer and you could I have created games that have no points no badges no leaderboard yet are super engaging uh, and that's that's going beyond some of these nuances. These are enablers. They're not the end in itself. Mm -hmm.
0: Which makes sense to me because, you know, um, I don't know if you call it gamification, but for years, uh, you know, a company will want people to push sales, obviously, because that's how companies survive. So you've got to have sales. But what happens is when they have these competitions, as you notice, the same people win every time and the same people could care less every time. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? They they are yeah. not motivated for some reason. They're not motivated by the money or the prizes or whatever. They're just, they okay. just go in, do a good job, but they're they are not going to be the one who's going to stay up at night trying to get the sale. So yeah. when I look at that, I think that's kind of a broken, it might work for some, but it's going to work with the top 20%. It's not going to work with the other 80% of the people pretty much. So how do you go into it? Let's say a company does want to obviously they've got to have sales. So yeah. they they want to teach people to 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 do that and to have fun and to feel like they have a purpose doing it. Cause I think when people have purpose or they know why they're doing something, that's part of it. So how do you create that?
1: Yeah. That's a that's a great example. Uh, that you've quoted, because uh, this is this is one of the challenges with with gamification, uh, which is that you know the the most standard definition of gamification seems to only appeal to one subset of people, which is the people who are either gamers who, who love to play, who love competition, or uh, another subset of people who would have done well anyway, with or without this game. So so they would have they would have excelled in. <laughs> the work that they're doing, anyway, right? Um, I think good game design or good gamification uh, starts with identifying your target audience. Who are you? Uh, who are you looking to influence? What are their motivations? And really understanding a whole basket of motivations. Uh, Yukai Chow, who's uh, who's you know a leader in the industry, has um, come up with a model called the Octalysis. Uh, which is a which is a great model to follow as well for looking at the different motivations of in gamification, and I can't go through all eight of them. But broadly said, um, they are broken into four different categories. Uh, it is you're, something called white hat motivation or white hat mechanics, which are more positive enforcements like accomplishment and ownership. Uh, whereas you've got black hat, which are more negative or um, or or slightly black hat uh, components like your scarcity or avoidance. You do something to avoid something else, uh, and then you've got you've got personal intrinsic motivators and extrinsic motivators. So so using this kind of a model can help you to really chart out your game design in a way that is appealing to everybody, and and that's one part of what what I would recommend. Uh, Another thing I would also recommend doing is to look at um, creating categories so that people don't win. There's not just one way to win. There are many different ways to win. And so also recognizing um, personalities, recognizing the innate capabilities of people and, and translating that into the game and awarding people based on that. Uh, So so those are those are a couple of different things that I would recommend instead of just, you know, using plain vanilla uh, gamification of points or awarding money, monetary awards for completing. And, And that's actually known scientifically now to reduce motivation, to reduce engagement. When there's a financial association with achieving a goal, and, and I'll explain this in a in a really quick and, and short way. So imagine you work through a weekend, right, uh, to get a project done, uh, and and in doing that, um, by the by, let's say Monday, you you go back to work and you receive. Uh, a note from your manager who says, "Hey, congratulations, great work. You've done this project, you know is finally complete. well done. And for that, we're going to award you an additional one hundred and fifty dollars. and and yeah, one hundred and fifty dollars is great. I mean because it came out of nowhere and you weren't expecting it. But when you really start to look at, okay, I spent like forty hours over the weekend working on this. Uh, you know, worked overtime. and is that was that worth? One hundred and fifty dollars? So what you start to do is you start to map what time you spent with the amount of return on quote-unquote investment that you got from that, as opposed to if you were to get a non-monetary value or something that you could not quantify, uh, would have a lot more sentimental value associated with it as opposed to having a, a monetary association.
0: Well, Yeah. I was just thinking about that. I thought, you know, if they give me, you know, if so, if I work Saturday and Sunday when I normally don't work it, then I would want them to give me two paid days off. That's what I would want.
1: There <laughs> you know
0: go. People, I don't want the money. Just give me those two, two paid days off. And there you go. My time back. Cause you can't get time back.
1: That's a, yeah, that's a beautiful way to look at it because now you get two paid days and that's because you know, so it's, or maybe even as a reward, three paintings right? Because you did that out of your own volition, you went above and beyond. And we're going to appreciate you by giving you time, which is so beautiful. Such a great way to look at it.
0: Exactly. So um, with the techniques you're using, are you going into schools in educational situations or are you always working with corporations or companies?
1: So we have partners that we work with that are working with educational institutions, and uh, that's been a, a really really interesting area to work with as well. Our primary focus uh, at the moment is to work with corporate and to uh, to to empower learning practitioners. That's who we really work with. So so folks like like Mary, you know, the one uh, beautiful lady that introduced us, uh, and 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 many like her who are doing learning solutions for their respective clients so we we tend to work with them but every once in a while we'll have partners that work with uh, educational institutions and through them we are able to also tap into education one of my goals in life is to change the way learning happens, and I you know and I I live by that and I want to start right at the at the at the elementary school one of the things i dream of is imagine kids go to school to uh to to play instead of to to learn because learning can happen as a by part of the play and i think of a of of school i think of, of kind of the ecosystem wherein you could um yeah so i just wanted to say that um so so one of my dreams is to for kids to go to school to play instead of to to just learn uh, the way that we do now. Uh, and imagine if you could go back to school and you could, instead of having to sit in classes and go through what the teacher is talking about, you're actually solving a themed situation like a, like a murder mystery of some sort. In grade four, it's about you know discovering the, the solution to a murder mystery, as opposed to in grade five, there's a different theme. And in doing all of this, you're living the entire school year to solve that one case, but in doing so, you are learning math, you're learning science, you're learning history, literature, and all of these things are designed in a way that it's kind of packed into the curriculum in a very neat and unique way, uh, which feels like play.
0: That sounds like so much fun. I would love that. I, I don't know what kids or adults actually wouldn't enjoy that.
1: Yeah. That's the goal. So so um, one piece at a time, one game at a time, we hope to to create the change. And, and ultimately, uh, we want to start right at the elementary school level, really create that kind of change and shift and then move upwards. Because I, f- I feel, I believe that when we work with the kids, that's really where we're starting to build the future of, of the world we live in. Yeah,
0: because then they would have, have self-interest in what they're they're doing I think the challenge for a lot of teachers these days is you know the traditional sit in your seat listen to a lecture is not working so well because our our attention spans are so short because I mean we can learn something on YouTube in two minutes um, and it's really hard to sit and listen to someone talking and talking and talking when you used to be able to consume your information so quickly so if they were self-directed because they want to find out who, who, who did it, (laughs) the murder mystery, then um, it's going to be so much more fun. And I see them learning at an accelerated pace.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the key because uh, they would learn at an accelerated pace. They would learn through experience. And I think that's one of the biggest shifts that also happen where instead of learning vicariously of you know something that you heard or read in a book you're actually learning through your own experiences you're drawing your own understanding and and you know even as adults we know that school can only teach you so much much of the experience and much of the the knowledge and understanding that we now have is a result of our experiences that we've had as as adults uh, living through life trying different things and they, those can be really, really powerful influencers in the decisions we make and the things we do as well. So yeah, creating more experiences early on.
0: I've been saying just really heighten the creativity of each individual who's doing that. So when I'm looking back and I'm kind of um, comparing, you know, you could have went to school, went to college, did the traditional but you ended up with a mentor going into entrepreneurship. And when I look at the school's system right now, they're doing the best they can, especially with all that's happened in the last year and a half. Um, but I see that it's a, somewhat broken because kids aren't taught entrepreneurship. They're not taught how to um, look at their financial house and how to handle that. They're not taught the really some basic things that they need to learn. In fact, um, it's different in different schools, but sometimes even some of the basic things like, um, you know, courses that some people need because they weren't taught at home or even like cooking or the home things or the shop things. um, There's things in the schools that we need in life that aren't, they're not there. They're just not there. So when you look at the school system and this gamifying, what kind of subjects, if you were going to design it, what kind of subjects would you put in? I mean, obviously, we need math. We need our science. We need these different things. But what classes would you keep or put in? Which ones would you add?
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that because I, I think that's that's such a relevant relevant question. Uh, if I were to look at this, I would um, I would leave a lot of the things intact, especially when it comes to you know math, science, the progression. I think the education system has done is trying, but they've they've they they've scaled the learning quite well from you know from first grade all the way up to to twelfth, and and the progression is is great. Um, what I would add to that, or or maybe remove a little bit, or maybe reduce a bit of a bit of history, uh, it's. It's great to know, but it's not something that's going to really change my life. We, uh, one of the original reasons why history was a part of education system was so we can learn from the experiences of others. If we're having or creating our own experiences, then we kind of don't need that anymore, right? Uh, then it's only about the knowledge of what happened or what was the Gettysburg Address, right? So, uh, and that's something that I can, all I need to know that there was such a thing called Gettysburg Address, and I can, I can find that in, on Google. like All I need to do is search it now. And so it's no longer about saving information here. It's more about knowing that such a piece of information exists. And that's the shift that we're, we're now looking at. in As we move from the information age into the experience age, and I think that's the transition that we're all, all going through at the moment. Uh, for a very long time, there's been the information age with the internet boom and all of that. But now we're slowly moving into what we would call the experience age, where information is understood that it is there and it will continue to be there. Uh, it's about how do we create those experiences. So another thing that I would add probably to this list is social skills. One of the things that's really missing uh, in and, And I don't mean to say that, you know, we need to turn everybody into great social people that they need to interact with or network with with one another. It's really about social etiquette. It's about learning how to understand your own emotions. It's because that's, that's been one of the biggest revelations in my, in my adult life uh, in the last uh, maybe eight years or so, as I've gotten to become more attuned with my own emotions and what I'm feeling and how those feelings are influencing my behavior. You know, like there are times when I know that I have a tendency of being sarcastic in the event that I'm hurt. So, so knowing your inner process can really help you to understand how you deal with feeling anxious or how you deal with frustration or how you deal with various types of emotions, which many a times seems to almost be on autopilot. And we, you know, we brush it off saying that's just how he is or that's just how she is, uh, which is to say, yeah, but there's more to it. And so if each person can start to understand why they, they respond the way they do or react the way they do, Uh, that could be, that could, you know, aid tremendously in, in ultimately progressing with humankind in towards their goals and what they want to do.
0: -hmm. Nice. And I don't know if you have experience with this or not, but my background is in behavioral optometry. So I've worked with a lot of children who are in I don't even know what you call it anymore. Special needs—you know—they're you know, autistic, or they have learning disabilities, or they have something physical that makes it harder for them to to learn. They need special services. Um, how do we add gamifying in that situation?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, great another great question. I think one of the one of the things we need to do is we need to start to look at. What are these special needs? Uh, because we cannot, we cannot blanket everything under under one category and say that this well, is a special like needs term.
0: Gift. Yeah, I don't even like the term. Yeah. I don't even like
1: the term exactly. In fact, I like to, I like to believe that um, that we're all disabled, and, and I don't know who said this, but was, I think Maya Angelou. I don't know, but, but they said, we're all disabled, some have identified or discovered our disabilities, most of us have not. So it's just a matter of knowing or understanding what your disability is. Uh, And we're all disabled in some way, shape or form. So so it's just that some are more apparent. And, and so we need to, we need to identify It goes back to the drawing board, what I was saying earlier, which is knowing our learners, knowing the people that we're trying to address or create a game solution for or gamified learning solution for, and then designing for them. So if we're we're talking about folks who are colorblind, obviously, we're going to need to take certain measures towards addressing that kind of a need. Uh, if we're talking about somebody who has ADD, right, and ADHD. So it's, we we just need to identify what those, what those uh, areas of, of growth are, and how do we overcome them? Or how do we design in a way that, or create affordances in a way that enable that? A great book to read around this area is uh, design of Everyday Things by uh, Don Norman. I don't know if you've read it or heard about it, but it's a brilliant book. And he talks about affordances and, um, and enablers that can be embedded within the design of very, very simple things. And these are, and this, so this is one of the things I believe as a designer. We have huge responsibility because if we are lazy in our minds and how we design things, uh, then the, the stuff we're going to produce as a result is going to be half-assed. And that's just, that's just the best way to put it, right? But if we're passionate and if we feel compelled and if we feel that we're really own that responsibility, uh, we could be designing some incredible things.
0: Yeah. So when you go into a corporation or a school or wherever your client is and you have to assess who's there and what their, you know, strengths are, what their learning styles are, how do you do that? Is there a process for that?
1: Yeah, there is. Uh, There are a number of processes that can be used to address that. It starts with Uh, you know, interviews, knowing who these people are. And, uh, and, you know, even, even learning styles are, is, is, is a concept, which is a little, little uh, foggy, because some folks buy into the idea of, of it, some don't, do not, some reject it blatantly. So it's, it's better to see people for, for who they are Uh, creating sample set groups of people. So if we're working with different regions, then identifying, uh, understanding the the norms of those regions and how the norms play out, cultural influences and how they play out in in, in the lives of people. Uh, For example, the, the work life of an average worker, a knowledge worker in India is very different, or the work ethic of an average knowledge worker in India is very different from the work ethic of an average knowledge worker uh, based out of the Netherlands, right? And so, so these are two different lifestyles, two different, you know, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, and and so, how do these play a role on the person? So, if you're really designing for with intent, then you've got to do your groundwork. You've got to do your homework in understanding who you're designing for, and with that clarity, you can draw some cues to how to go about designing the, the learning experiences
0: yeah. and the
1: games, of course.
0: All right. So I'm going to switch gears and ask you a personal question. Sure. What gives you the most happiness and fulfillment in your life at this point?
1: Hmm. Wow. Uh, what gives me the most happiness and fulfillment? So in the last year, one of the things that shifted for me is um, I've gone from using games for myself because I built these games for myself. I was doing a lot of work with my corporate clients, and I started to build these games for myself, and and they worked great. I made a lot of money doing that. I helped a lot of organizations and, and influenced a lot of uh, leaders to to even see games to be a valuable medium of learning. Uh, but in the last year with COVID, a lot of a lot of um, Uh, learning practitioners lost or diminished significantly their sources of income due to not being able to facilitate uh, their live experiences or their live classroom experiences. And they were forced to move into the virtual ecosystem. So one of the things I, I committed towards was to empower and enable these learning practitioners with my games. So I built an entire certification program, which is a four week long certification program to help learning practitioners learn how to use game-based learning in order to facilitate classroom learning experiences. And today we've got just over 50 uh, certified facilitators around the world. And I know that's not a big number, but every last one of these facilitators that that every time they they cross the finish line uh, brings me immense fulfillment, immense satisfaction. Being able to assist these people and and you know in retrospect now that I look at it, many of them have created new streams of income for themselves as a result of that, and that brings me immense joy. So so I would say I'd have to say that it's it's that
0: awesome. Which leads into my next question, which was. Um, If people wanted to work with you or connect with you, how do they do that? What services do you have available now for people?
1: Sure. Um, Very easy to connect with me. I'm quite active on LinkedIn and uh, people can write to me on LinkedIn. We can message and exchange ideas. Uh, Even if they want to learn about games, gamification, I'm more than happy to share whatever little bit I know about it and, and, um, uh, sometimes people want to learn how to make games themselves, so I can direct them to various resources, things that kind of got me started. Uh, very humble sort of uh, approaches, like Coursera courses for free and things like that. Very economical as well, um, and um, and and so yeah, LinkedIn is is the best way. Another way to also engage is to attend one of my games. I host a weekly game for my LinkedIn network wherein they get to join and play and interact with with other learning practitioners who have similar mindsets and uh and, and draw learning as a result of it so those are a couple of ways to get involved.
0: yeah it does sound like fun <laughs> so thanks for offering that absolutely and thank you so much for being on the podcast today and um it's been a great conversation and thanks for sharing all you know
1: thank you likewise i had a blast thanks for having me here
0: Yeah. So one last question before we complete, what is your best advice for living an incredible, amazing life?
1: What is my best advice for living an incredible, amazing life? I would say start, get started, do the things that bring you the most joy and, and do them sooner than later because there's no guarantee of how long you're gonna be on this ball of mud, right? So make the most of every day, and and just just try it. I mean, what's the worst that can possibly happen? That's that's one of the things that I asked myself when I was when I was in India, and I about um, uh, eight years ago, and I was expanding my business. Um, uh, I I got connected with someone in Malaysia, and I started growing my business in Southeast Asia. And and I asked myself, you know, I was a little hesitant. I felt anxious. I wasn't sure. I'd never been to Malaysia. I didn't even know where it was on the map. But I said, you know what? Let's let's give it a shot. What's the worst that could possibly happen? And today I have some incredible friendships in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in in uh, Singapore. And and these are partners that we work with. And a lot of our uh, not just revenue, but a lot of our, our relationships are now intertwined, which is so beautiful. So so I would say get started. Don't don't hold back. Uh, try and see where see where you go give it your all every
0: day wonderful well thank you so much and we'll talk to you again soon
1: thank you for having me